You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Is on the unending, upside-down love of God. I want to start by reading a passage from 2 Corinthians 5, 13 to 18. And I want to come back to it in the second half of the, of the sermon. For if we... I'm going to just give a quick... Maybe it's just me. I'm just getting a lot of feedback up here. Um, can you guys hear it fine? I can get over myself getting a lot of feedback. <laughs> For if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Let me say that again. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. They say St. Francis would often stand on his head. And they said the reason he would stand on his head was so he could see the world right side up. I would love to do that for you up here right now, but I think I would really hurt myself. Um, the, as we get into the upside-down, never-ending love of God today, just starting by saying God does not fit in our minds. Just this morning, I was reading in Job, and Job is trying to tell you know his, his not-so-good friends Look at God. Look at the the constellations. And he's talking about how great God is in Job 9. Much later in the book, God's going to say, Job, look at the constellations. You don't have a clue. Even when we think we have a clue, if we come here today, we think we have good theology and we, we understand scriptures. We don't have that much of depth of truly searching out the unsearchable riches of God. And my desire today is that we stand on our heads and at least go a little bit deeper and start to understand this star-breathing, constellation-hanging God. I'd like this sermon today to be a bridge from Christmas into this new year. So I want to take you back into Christmas. You guys studied Luke 2. You know that passage it's, it, it starts with this, well, in it, we have this incredible angelic concert, right, where the, the angels are having the greatest concert in the history of the world. I think we can agree to that. 
And I I actually did some very extensive research. I Googled uh, for 30 seconds, what's the most expensive concert ticket that's ever been paid for? Based on my extensive research, it was $168,000 for a Led Zeppelin concert. I think people would pay, those who have the money, would pay millions if not billions to attend this angelic concert. And yet this galactic king who puts on the greatest concert in the history of the world did not reserve a hospital room, much less an inn room in Bethlehem for his son. I'm a dad. We've had four kids. If I, on the night that one of my kids were born, put on a huge concert but did not go and reserve a hospital bed for my wife, what kind of dad would you think I was? How can the galactic king put on such a concert for dirty, poor shepherds, and at the same time the prince of peace gets a germ-infested cradle full of cow backwash? How does a loving God do that? About a month or two ago, I had a chance to meet a Bible translator. And he's in Nepal. He's American. He's learned Nepalese, but he hasn't learned the other dialects and languages in the Himalayas within Nepal. So he works with translating teams to translate the Bible from Nepalese into these, these local dialects. And he's working with them through Luke 2. And when he gets to the point saying that Jesus was born in a manger, the nationals were indignant we're not translating that word. And it's not because they don't understand where the manger is. They're they're nomadic people. They're sheep herders. They understand what a manger is way more than what we understand a manger is. And they refuse, like combatively refuse, we're not going to translate that word because we refuse to think the king of the universe would have his son born in that. Let me step away for one second and ask you a question, then I'll come right back to this. Have you ever thought that when you feel most unloved by God that might be the moment where he is loving you most intensely let me step back in I'll come back to that question this harsh reality of Jesus being born in a manger is not a one off or an outlier his first day as an incarnate King Jesus here started off in suffering, and that was his M.O. for his whole life. The suffering servant, as Isaiah prophesied. We see that the Father often led him on the suffering road, but we also see him 
following the Father and choosing that suffering road. I think of when he started his ministry. He chose to fast for 40 days. I think of the time he met with the woman at the well. And if you remember, afterwards when the disciples arrived, they were gone because they were getting food. They brought Jesus lunch. And Jesus' response to them, I don't need it. And they're like, well, maybe he ate somewhere else. And he's like, no. Doing the Father's will is what fulfills me. I think we often have this mentality with suffering. And as I read Job this morning, I was like, maybe that's always been the world's mentality with suffering. Is you suffer because you must have done something bad at some point. <laughs> and when you get good things, you must have done something right. right? I, I, we've heard people say, well, you must have done something right. And, and, and you hear that catchphrase of the idea of karma. But we see that sneak into the church and this idea of health, wealth, and prosperity. If you, you have the right faith, if you do Christianity right, you will be blessed with good things, wealth, and, and a healthy life and long life. I think we would all say, we, we, here at Homes, we, we're not a health, wealth, and prosperity church. We, we, we don't think those things, but I, I would say subliminally, it's hard not to, at a certain level, being American, have this sense that a good father lavishes, lavishes his kids with good gifts. And those good gifts come in the form of things we want, comfort and pleasure We'd like him to give us predictability and safety. We'll take a little bit of abundance. And as we reflect on last year, and we start getting our minds around this new year, for those of us who say last year was a tough year, it was a hard year, it's probably because we're thinking about the amount of suffering we faced last year. And suffering means hard, it means tough, it means difficult. And as we think about this year, we might be thinking, I sure hope this is going to be a good year. And that good year probably has to do with maybe a lot less suffering, more comfort, a lot more predictability and safety, a lot more health and less sickness. So maybe we do have this mentality of, hey, God, if you're going to love on us this year, could it be a really good year? And could that good year mean, could it be a year without suffering? Why would the Father send Jesus to the manger? And why would that be the beginning of a suffering road? Why not live a lavish life, but if you come to die for our sins, okay, at the end of your days, let's figure out a quick painless death, and there, you paid the price for our sins. Why send his son on the path of suffering? This upside-down love of God. If you can pull up Hebrews 7, Nine, uh, thank you. This is a radically unexpected verse. If you're reading through Hebrews and you just come up on this verse, you're probably going to go, where did that come from? 
Let me read it, and I think you'll have that same reaction. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. We're good so far, right? That, we, know, we know that. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Did that obedience thing throw anybody else off besides me? Jesus learned obedience? And Jesus calling out in prayers and petitions to the one who could save him, and he was heard, but he wasn't saved from death. He was heard, but he wasn't given what he had cried out for. We have to dig deeper because this level, this is pretty hard to understand. That way. And is this truly an upside down? kind of love because when I think of how I would lavish gifts on my children, I wouldn't look at it this way. If we think when we receive good things, it's because we did good things. And if we think we receive hard things as a consequence of bad things, then we would say, well, then Jesus should never receive any bad things because he never did any bad things. He should only receive good things because that's all he's ever done is good. So how does good Jesus receive bad things from a loving father? Do you, are, are we clear in the question here? And then Hebrews says he did it to learn obedience. But if Jesus was never disobedient, why did he have to learn obedience? I hope we're all thoroughly confused at this point. Well, let's start with the lowest hanging fruit. We know the Father didn't do any of these things because he didn't love Jesus. We know the Father loves Jesus perfectly, so much that they're one. We know that Jesus wasn't disobedient. And we know that Jesus did suffer so a loving father can also lovingly have his son suffer. Those aren't at odds. His love for the son and him sending his son to suffer. He's not unloving his son when his son is suffering. So what is this obedience? If Jesus wasn't disobedient, but he learned obedience, then he's not going from disobedient to obedient. He's going from obedient to more deeper obedience to deeper obedience. What does that mean? It means simply his obedience as a 33-year-old was a deeper obedience than as a 5-year-old, as a 15, as a 20-year-old. 
how he obeyed when he was 20 and 25 perfectly is still at those ages he wasn't asked to receive a crown of thorns, to be spat on his face, to have whips rip out his flesh. At any one of those moments, he could have said, no more, Father. No more. We, we know at any point he could have stopped the suffering. He could stop those who were persecuting him. He could have even dissolved the elements in the nails that held him. But the depths of his obedience in those last hours were deeper than what the father had ever asked him prior to that. He'd never disobeyed, but he had never been asked up until that point to do the will of the father, which would be to suffer at those extents. He could have said, hey, I'll do the crucifixion thing, but not the thorns, not the whips, not the persecution, not the ripping off my clothes. But like a lamb led to the slaughter, he said, not my will, but your will be done, even if you ask all of those things. With every step of obedience, he's emptied. He said in John 14, when the disciples like, just show us the Father and that's enough. He's like, have you not seen? Everything I do is not of my own initiative, but the Father doing it through me. Jesus is completely emptied so that the Father would work completely through him. And so that obedience is an emptying, an emptying, an emptying so that the Father can work, work, work through him. So a loving father is allowing his son to suffer in such a way to be so completely emptied so the loving father can use the son to lovingly save us. But now I want to apply that to us, to the believers here today. As we flip the Father's love for us upside down this morning, as we go from the manger in Christmas to this new year, I want to show a picture of Richard Wormbrandt behind me. This is one of my heroes. Raise your hand if you've heard of Richard Wormbrandt. Just a little bit on him. Um, he became a Christian in Romania, wasn't born into a Christian family, became a Christian, became a pastor, and then World War II happened, as you know, afterwards became part of the USSR, and in the communist regime, they began to root out Christianity, and pastors were arrested, including himself. He spent 14 years in the Russian gulag. At least three of those years were in solitary confinement. I've often watched a sermon. You can look for it on YouTube. He's now much older after having been released. And he's preaching, and he, in his thick Romanian accent, he talks about, this is probably the first time you've had a preacher sit down in his barefoot while he preaches to you. And he explains he's barefoot because his feet were so badly beaten over and over in the Russian prisons that he can't wear shoes for long periods of time and he can't stand for a long period of time. But the sermon that he shares 
It's called the beauty of nothingness. Going back to talking about how Christ was emptied through his obedience, now turning it over to us. And this, he talks about this beauty of nothingness and this thick Romanian accent. And he talks about how everything was taken from him. When they imprisoned him, they took his possessions. They took his family. They took his name. He was referred to as a number for 14 years. For much of his time, the prison that he was in was 30 feet underground. They took the sun. They took colors. The only color he saw was gray. In solitary confinement, they took people away from him. He said often, at most, it would be one moldy piece of bread a week. He said, I became nothing. Then he goes on in this thick Romanian accent and he says, nothing. Oh, that's powerful. He said, that's how God made the world. What a powerful ingredient is nothing because that's the ingredient God used when he made everything. He says, and when God suspended the world, he would have to suspend it on the strongest thing so that the world would stay strongly suspended. And if the strongest thing in the universe was the strongest steel cable, then he would suspend the earth on a steel cable. But he didn't. He found something stronger than steel. He found nothing. And the world is suspended on nothing because when nothing is suspended, the world, then God the Father can be everything. And Richard Wormbank goes on to say, when I was reduced to nothing, that's the very ingredient where the Father, the loving Father, the upside down loving Father can begin to do everything. Not just in Richard, but then through Richard. He goes on to say, nothing is the most resistant material in the universe. Jesus brought our salvation through his emptying of self that the Father would work through him. But then now the Father uses our emptiness to take that salvation to the nations. Behind me, it's going to say Colossians 24. It's another mind-boggling verse. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is Paul writing the church of Colossae. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I hope that bothered you. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What did Christ do that wasn't enough and so something's lacking? That doesn't make sense, right? Christ's atonement is complete and unconditional. But he says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking and what Christ's afflictions did. What is lacking? For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I am a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So something is happening in his flesh through afflictions that then makes the word of God more fully known to others. 
Christ's complete payment for our sins, his atonement is complete. There's nothing lacking there. What is lacking then, Paul? It's the visual demonstration of being completely emptied and realizing the love of the Father is greater than all emptiness. Through Paul's sufferings and willingness to suffer, the unbelieving world begins to believe, saying what he is suffering for must be greater than his actual sufferings. What is this upside-down love of God? His sufferings prove that the upside-down love of God is greater than his sufferings. So he's willing to suffer. Paul being emptied and being willing to fill up his flesh with afflictions powerfully takes the message of Christ's sacrificial gospel to an unbelieving world. Just like Richard Wormbrandt. You've heard Paul say it this way. Whatever was gained to me, I now consider loss. It should be up on the screen behind me. For Christ, the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. This isn't cute. This isn't hallmarky. He's saying something that our materialistic culture wants to quickly dismiss. It's better to lose everything and gain Christ. It's better. It's not a cute phrase. I'm telling you, the emptier you become, the more incredible the love of Christ fills you. It's better. He's not a masochist. He's not suffering for suffering's sake. He's suffering because he gets the gospel. The emptier I become, the greater Christ not just fills me, but reaches the world through me. John the Baptist said it differently, but similarly. I must decrease that he might increase. There is an inverse relationship for the, the, the mathematicians and statisticians. The more we fill up ourselves with ourselves, the less we are filled by Christ. And the more we are emptied of ourselves, the more we are filled by Christ. That's upside down love. And as we reflect on Christmas and move towards the new year, is it not so tempting to say, oh, this year would be such a good year if? How would we complete that sentence? If all my sicknesses were healed, if all my broken relationships were reconciled, if all the things I plan actually come together and not disrupted like they were last time. That would be a good year in verse relationships. This week, starting this past week on Monday, I, I had some burdens. And I go to the Lord in a time of meditation through Romans 8. 
I love Romans 8. It's my go-to, especially, as I told you in the past, at 3 a.m. in the morning. I've memorized it because I don't want to have to get up and turn the light on (laughs) to go through it. And I love it because there's these promises. There's these deep, he doesn't give me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship. These present sufferings don't compare to the glory that will be revealed. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit that gives life sets me free. There's so many promises. And I go before him, I'm broken. I got burdens. I just want to know who I am before you. And there was this self-pitying Nate going for Jesus, just saying, tell me everything you do for me. Tell me everything you do for me which I think was an okay starting point. What was so surprising to me an hour later when I left that time with him, I was no longer focused on my burdens that was taken into the work week. But my eyes were looking towards the people I would go minister to with hearts of compassion. I promise you, I didn't talk myself into that. That wasn't the goal of going into the time. I didn't do something super spiritual. There was just an encounter of the, with the Holy Spirit through deep meditation of scriptures. He changed my inward focus to an outward focus. That these burdens that were making me so self-absorbed, he used that same hole that they were carving, but instead of that hole making me drown into myself, projecting that feeling, that emptiness, that need, that longing now onto others. The unending upside down love of God that would lead us to temporary suffering so that the God of power might mightily work through our emptiness. Jesus said it this way, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And my flesh despises that. That just sounds, ugh. But my spirit says he's actually saying something very lovingly, fulfilling through that idea of denying myself. Grew up with a friend at our church and Spartanburg, and she later wrote a song, and here's some lyrics from the song she wrote. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Upside down love. You know, in Hebrews 5, it talks about Jesus with loud petitions and crying, crying out to the one who could hear him. We know that context. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He took the disciples with him. He took three all the way deeper in, asked to pray with them. They kept falling asleep. He was alone. He'd go back. They'd fall asleep again. He was alone in his crying out. If you know part of my story, though, when my brother almost four years ago now, was dying of cancer. And I saw, and I'd have times praying with him where he would cry out in ways I I don't know those depths of emptiness. Depths of longing. I, I, I 
have this conviction. I don't have scripture to back this up. But in some ways, he's starting to join Jesus in the garden with those kind of prayers. Deeper emptiness than I know, deeper longing than I know, crying out to the one who could save him. And Jesus didn't save him from cancer. But Jesus saved him. And his cancer was temporary. And through his deep emptying and suffering here temporarily, many more have and will come to Jesus through that because Jesus was greater than the cancer. Jesus was greater than saying goodbye to his wife and three kids. Jesus was greater than his professional ambitions. Jesus was greater than his hold on to security. How do I provide for my family? He cried out in loud tears and petitions and was heard by the one who could save him. But he didn't save him. But he did save him. It's upside down. So let me go back to that scripture I started with and I want to end with some application points. First, in, in Corinthians 5, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. It's not our love for Jesus controls us. His love for us controls us. It's not you leaving here today and say, I just need to love him more. I need to go do more. I need to be a better Christian this year. I need to do these things this year. My, I need to love Jesus better. That's not what scripture says. Now, I'm, I'm not an English major, but there's a subject and a verb here. And the subject is doing the verb. And I'm not in the subject here. I'm not the one doing the verb. I'm actually in the predicate. The subject's doing the verb on me in the predicate. So what's happening structurally in this sentence? God's love, the subject, is doing the controlling to me. So how do we take that upside down love that wants to control us into application points into this new year? One, one meditation. We'll just bring these up on the slides. Sometimes we want to take the Christmas concert, the angelic, if you guys can go to the next slide, the angelic concert, and we want that to be our 2024, just a really good year of entertainment, of what we want. It might not come in the slide. That's okay. That's why you guys are taking notes. Wink, wink. It's okay. Don't stay at the angelic concert. Get to the manger. Come to the rescuer, Jesus. Don't be in awe of the angels and miss our Savior. Don't be in awe of the splendor, the entertainment, the pleasure, the predictability, the safety, the healing. Come to Jesus. Paul said it like this. In Philippians 3, that I would know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings.
Let him control. Let go of your control. Let go of you trying to figure out how to have the safest year ever. Just let him control it. Just come to the manger of the Savior and say, I do whatever you want this year. I'll let you, heavenly, upside down, loving Father, you control this year. Whatever you got, I'm just going to start emptying myself because it's not about me. Use whatever you got this year to just use me, empty me to show the world your gospel is worth believing. Secondly, be convinced that as Jesus empties you through whatever's going on in your life that felt like that's the worst part of your life right now and maybe when you think he's least loving is the time he's loving you most intensely, be convinced that when Jesus empties you, that frees you from fear, stress, and pressure. And that sounds really good to me because I struggle with fear, I struggle with stress, and I struggle with pressure. Let me explain myself. You don't have to control every predictability and safety this coming year. Winston Churchill said at the end of his days, in my life I had many worries and only a few of them came true. How much of our life is defined by worries that don't even happen? You're trying to control something that's uncontrollable. So you should be freed from fear, knowing the loving, upside down, but loving Father wants to control you this year. (laughs) Give him control then. Give him the control and stop stressing out, trying to save yourself from fears that might or might not happen. I heard in a sermon the other day, pretty famous pastor, and he said, the godliest people I know, they're really weak people who are completely dependent on Christ. There's no pressure on you this morning to become some super Christian. You just have to be a weak person that just runs to Jesus. Richard Wormbrandt for 14 years wasn't out preaching to multitudes. He was hiding, beaten in a prison cell. The only pressure is let go and let the loving, upside down love of Father control what goes on in 2024. You can let fear and pressure go. And for me, that sounds really good because those are two things that grip my life. When you become convinced of those things, you're going into this week and something starts to grip you. You can't control it. And you're trying to let the fear go. You're trying to let the pressure go. That believing of who he is will work through your emptying. That's called faith. And Hebrews 11 says it like this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let me say that in a different way. With faith, you please God. But when we're trying to grip control of our lives, when we're trying to procure safety and profitability 
and healing and all these reconciliations, when we're gripping those things, what we're really saying is, God, I'd like to have a faith-free life, please. If this year could go the way I planned it, then I don't need any faith, and that sounds really good to me. What you're really saying is, I'd like to have a faith-free life in 2024. What you're really saying is, I'd like to have a life that doesn't please you. Because the only way you're going to please him in 2024, according to Hebrews 11:6, is through faith. How ironic that our prayers are often, all these things in my life that are causing me to faith you, could you take them away? Because I'm tired of being emptied. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Let me, em- let the loving hands of the Father empty you. And you trusting that, that does please the Father. What if we cared more about pleasing the Father than having a faith-free life in 2024? And it's not empty faith. And the emptying and the sufferings are temporary. He tells us, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hands. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm going to finish with one final point. As we go past the angelic concert, meet Christ at the suffering manger, and we're letting go of our grip of fear and pressure and stress, go with other people to find our Savior Christ. And I want to give a specific application, and I actually have something I want to give you after the service today. Richard Wormbrandt, when he was released, he eventually came to the United States. He started an organization called the Voice of the Martyrs. Raise your hand if you've heard of Voice of the Martyrs. It's one of the dearest organizations to me. In fact, when I have my deepest sufferings, I usually just run to the persecuted church because I'm going to feel junky. So I might as well take my heavy emotions and pour it on my brothers and sisters suffering for Christ versus wallowing in self-pity. For about 25 years, Voices of Mars have been very close to my heart. They, can, they email me every week just saying these are current prayer requests of our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world. And it just allows me to pray for them. It hit more at home this past December. One of our teachers, Manatian, She's from China. Her parents lead a house church in China. Their church has been raided a couple times lately. Their dear friend David Zhou has now been imprisoned. His sentence is for nine years. I've never been just one person removed from a brother who's in prison in Christ, for Christ in China. So as I go to the manger, I'm going with people like David Zhou. I did get bracelets, and they say, they say imprisoned with them. And if you would like to have one, I'd, and you'd wear it, and it would every time it pulls out an arm hair, it would remind you of people like David Joe, and you would meet with them 
as we go into 2024, bear burdens together and that they would not lose faith in the upside down love of God. Let's pray. Our flesh is so afraid of your upside down love, Jesus. Would you hold our hands as we're learning to say, let us decrease that you would increase. Would you strengthen our spirit to say that faith is true faith. That is good for us to let go. Emptying ourselves is the only path to be filled by you. And may we say your fullness is better than being self-absorbed. Would you free us in 2024 to let go? And that's your fatherly love can control us. And not just us, but you would use us to take your upside down loving gospel to the nations. And we put our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for that very thing like David Joe before you. And may their faith even now please you. And may your spirit strengthen that faith. In your name, Jesus. Amen.